Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. What would it look like to view the climate crisis through a theological lens? Rabbi Shai held in God, Humanity, and the Rest of Creation, Theology in a Time of Climate Emergency, challenges us to use religion and theology not as an easy fix to the problem, but rather as a tool to figure out how we can heal from what ails us. Let's listen in. I want to start sort of on a grave note. We live in a time of climate emergency. The earth, God's earth, is in grave danger. What I want to try and do in the time that we have is to think aloud about how Jewish theology might help us make sense of this predicament and respond to it. Many people on this call, I am assuming, know much more about climate science than I do, so I will not spend much time laying out the contours of the predicament in which we find ourselves. I will only orient us by sharing a few bare facts, courtesy of the philosopher, theologian, Celia Dean Drummond. Scientific consensus is that human beings are changing the climate in both the short term and the long often in unpredictable ways. This has led to my single favorite term in all of science, climate weirding, a term that climate scientists use to describe what we are going through right now. Short-term effects include more frequent storms, floods, droughts, and fires, and long-term effects include rising ocean levels, deep ocean heating, and ocean acidification. Carbon dioxide and temperature levels have varied in direct relationship with each other for the last nine ice ages. And the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere now is higher than it has been in the last 800,000 years. Extinction rates are several orders of magnitude higher than in the past, which has led, as many of you know, some scholars to refer to our time as the sixth great extinction event. This is parallel to other historic extinction events, each of which required about 10 million years of recovery time. These numbers sound daunting, and they should be. This time, uniquely, the extinctions are a result of human actions, either indirectly through climate change and loss of habitat, or directly through destruction for particular human uses. We, in a word, are in trouble, and an overwhelming majority of us are in denial. We still elect people who deny the most basic scientific analysis of the state of our planet, and many of us still talk about economic growth as if it were always and everywhere an unmitigated economic blessing. As we begin to think about this problem or set of problems from a Jewish perspective, I want to turn, as I often do first, to the book of Dvarim, Deuteronomy. As the Israelites stand at the border of the promised land, Moshe reminds them of how God has taken care of their needs during their 40-year sojourn in the desert, and Moshe promises them that God will continue to provide once they enter the land. And Bachi, if we can share the sources now, as you can see, thank you, in source one, Moshe sings the land's praises and evokes its abundance. He assures the people that they will have more than enough to eat in this wonderful land, Eretz Nachale Mayim, I know to Telmod, Yotzim Babikauvahar, a land filled with streams and springs and fountains issuing from plain and hill. And then he says, 
in the underlying portion, and you shall eat and be satisfied and give thanks to the Lord your God for the good land which God has given you. It's worth sitting with these three verbs for a minute. The achalta, the savata, uverachta. The people can eat to satiation, but that is not and cannot be the end of the story. The people must also bless. Now, what's the function of a blessing? A blessing, to put it simply, is an acknowledgement of just how much they, just how much we, have been given. The people may become doers, but whatever they accomplish or achieve in the land, they must remember that they are first and foremost receivers, recipients of God's generosity and goodness. This is not cheap or cliche piety. This is a life orientation the Torah seeks to instill, nothing less than that, a fundamental orientation of life. Enjoy the land that God gives you by all means, but remember that you did not build it all yourself. Remember that God has sustained you in the past, continues to sustain you in the present, and will continue to sustain you in the future. The Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann, commenting on these verses, writes the following. I'm going to quote this because I think it's helpful for framing for us. The action is not completed until the third verb that turns Israel's satiated attention back to the creator God. Israel is fully satiated by the second verb, the savata, but it is not so satiated as to refuse the creator. Israel, in its anticipated prosperity in the new land, knows that to eat and be satisfied are not completed without a turn to the giver, a turn that fends off every illusion of self-sufficiency. Deuteronomy's challenge, I would say, in other words, is how to become satisfied without becoming self-satisfied, how to be sated without forgetting anything but my own hunger and satiation. I emphasize this point in part because of what comes next in Sefer Dvarim. Moshe warns the people of what is in many ways the gravest danger they face, which is forgetfulness. In the eyes of the book of Dvarim, the greatest spiritual danger there is, and by implication, probably the greatest moral danger there is, is forgetfulness. Look at verse 12 in source two. Pentochal visavata. The first two verbs are present. The people eat and are sated. But the all-important third one, uverachta, disappears. There is no uverachta. Instead, what is there? The shachachta. And you forget in verse 14, you eat, you're satisfied, and instead of blessing, you forget. Blessing is literally replaced in these verses by forgetting. Here's Brueggemann one more time. This text knows that the first two verbs, eat and be satiated, set up an immense seduction. The chance to imagine autonomy, self-sufficiency, and self-congratulation. That I want to add, is what enables the tragedy of verse 14, the heart growing haughty and forgetting about God. Now, if you turn to verse 18, underlined again the first word, rather than forgetting, the people are urged by this text 
as they are again and again in Dvarim, to remember. Remembering and blessing are set up in opposition to forgetting. Let's turn to Brugaman one last time, and then we'll leave him behind. The third verb of Deuteronomy, after eat and be full, is very much undecided. Creation is a promise of abundance, generosity, and fidelity. But the response among us is not a done deal. Eat and be satiated. Everything, however, turns on the third verb. Either bless and remember or exalt self and forget. The creature has the deep chance of glad, grateful responsiveness to the creator or self-sufficiency in which the giver of food and satiation is disregarded in a spasm of self-regard. Devarim returns to the theme of the disappearing uveirachta, the disappearing bless, in chapter 31. Describing Israel's lack of fidelity, God says, When I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey that I promised on oath to their fathers, they will eat and be satisfied and grow fat and turn to other gods and serve them. Vidashain, I should say. The people will eat and be satisfied, but instead of blessing this time, they grow fat, self-satisfied, and forget about God. This becomes almost like food as a narcotic that knocks out our awareness of owing something. The people will spurn God and abandon the laws of the covenant. And in the ultimate act of unbridled self-assertion, they will hate the hand that feeds them. They will hate me and spurn me and break my covenant. Now, why am I opening a lecture on God, humanity, and the rest of creation with a close literary and theological analysis of Devarim's worry about the people of Israel's future in the land of Israel? Because what I want to suggest is the temptation that Israel will face in the land epitomizes a temptation that each of us as individuals and all of us as a species face too how to receive gratefully rather than take forgetfully or even violently. How to receive gratefully rather than take forgetfully or even violently. Or, if you prefer to put it differently, how to become and remain the kind of people who can eat and at some point be sated, stop consuming, and remember to bless. Let me pause here for a moment to underscore what I believe is a critical distinction between taking on the one hand and receiving on the other. In the language of 20th century Musser figure Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler, the difference is between being a notel on the one hand, a taker, and a mekabel on the other, a receiver. We take from a place of forgetfulness, self-assertion, self-indulgence, and the illusion of autonomy. I did it all myself, and it's all mine. But we receive from a place of remembering, acknowledging those who sustain us and the one who sustains us all, and from a place of embracing our creatureliness 
and vulnerability. There is all the spiritual and moral difference in the world between being a taker on the one hand and being a receiver on the other. For the Bible, forgetting about God goes hand in hand with forgetting about others and about our obligations towards them. The taker's position is that since I did it all myself, I don't owe anybody anything. Not surprisingly, in fact, the prophet Ezekiel describes Paro, God's arch villainous enemy in Tanakh, describes Paro as saying about himself, I created the Nile. The Nile is mine. Actually, it's a wonderful ambiguity in the Hebrew. Leah Ori Vaani Asitini can either mean the Nile is mine, I made it for myself, or the Nile is mine, I made myself. The one who says, I am the author of my own life, I am the source of all my blessings, is not coincidentally the one who degrades, dehumanizes, and oppresses others. Interestingly, the people's voraciousness and their avariciousness in general are intertwined. We won't read these together, but if you look at sources five and six, Isaiah and Micah make that clear, how greed and insatiability go together. I want more. I want more. I want more. I wasn't planning on saying this, but I almost can't help myself. That is fascinatingly, I think, the original meaning of the do not covet um, commandment, the 10th commandment. Do not covet. Do not covet is not a prohibition on the poor wanting what the rich have. It's a prohibition primarily on the rich not willing to let the poor have anything at all. That's the amazing, amazing claim here. It's Lotach mode is about never being able to say enough and therefore essentially plundering those who are vulnerable. The prophets emphasize that nature participates in the ruptures caused by sins like greed. You can look, for example, at source seven. God brings, a, as it were, a lawsuit against the inhabitants of the land because of their immorality and their lack of righteousness. And then, verse three, for that, the earth is withered. Everything that dwells on it languishes. Beasts of the field and birds of the sky, even the fish of the sea, perish. Nature is deeply affected by human sin. Something that we should all be able to recognize just by opening a daily newspaper. And Isaiah 24 kind of hammers home the same point. The earth was defiled under its habitants and therefore it is withered and languishes. The land suffers and mourns on account of the damage wrought by human beings. Jeremiah, for example, claims that moral order affects the order of creation, or if you prefer, Moral disorder effects chaos. So if you look at source nine for a minute, I look at the earth, it is unformed and void. The earth is tohu vavohu. It has been turned back into chaos. The skies and their light is gone. Human beings are engaged in a dismantling of God's creation. That's what human sin 
actually does. By the way, that's the meaning of the flood in the book of Genesis. When human beings turn the world back into chaos through their violence and lawlessness, their Hamas, the flood is essentially God saying, okay, if you really want to live in a chaotic world, I'll let the waters of chaos come back. I'll just let you finish the process that you've begun. Accordingly, the flip side of all this, redemption will yield a glorious wholeness with humanity, nature, and God all in communion with one another, right? Verses that are familiar to most, if not all of you, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard with the kid, the calf, the beast of prey, the fatling together with a little boy to herd them, the cow and the bear shall graze, etc., etc. If sin and human failure result in chaos, human virtue results in the healing of nature itself. I'm not sure whether or not what I'm about to say is implicitly part of the biblical logic, but I think it is true and crucial. The unfettered assertion of the self, this is what I want and what I want I will take, yields both social injustice and abuse of the earth. As activists for environmental justice remind us, these two are often inextricably entangled. Social justice, social injustice, I should say, and abuse of the earth. Note also another dimension of what forgetfulness of God and assertion of self yield. A world in which any distinction between needs on the one hand and wants on the other has been all but totally erased. It strikes me often that we will not heal what ails us, let alone rise to the massive and unprecedented challenges climate change lays before us, unless and until we manage to tame our wants and bring them more into accord with our genuine needs. Now, let me stop for a minute and say, or ask, how did we get here? How did we come to treat the world as little more than a resource for meeting our unrestrained wants? So first, let me say something about materialism and consumerism. The environmental historian Donald Worster writes the following, which I find quite helpful myself. The most important roots of the environmental crisis lie not in any particular technology of production or healthcare, but rather in modern culture itself, in worshiping the God of GNP. According to the modern worldview as Worcester sees it, quote, improving one's physical condition, that is achieving more comfort, more bodily pleasure, and especially higher levels of affluence, is the greatest good in life, greater than securing the salvation of one's soul, greater than learning reverence for nature or for God. The damage this has wrought, obviously, is vast, should say perhaps immeasurable. According to Worcester, the crisis we face is fast becoming the crisis of modern culture, calling into question not only the ethos of the marketplace and industrialism, but also the central story we've been telling ourselves for the past two or three centuries, the story of our triumph by reason over the rest of nature. Religion, and I think this is actually really important in contrast to some other environmental historians, religion on Worcester's account is not the cause of our problems. If anything, it has the potential to help us find some solutions. Speaking of Christianity, but I imagine willing to extend it elsewhere, Worcester says, 
it taught people that there are higher purposes in life than consumption. I would add, it at its best taught people that there are higher purposes in life than consumption. But let's probe still deeper. What enables people to worship the God of GNP, as Worcester calls it? What yields that kind of idolatry? I don't think this is the whole answer. I don't remotely mean to suggest that it is. But I think the philosopher Norman Wiersbe is onto something crucial. We've gotten where we are in no small part, he says, because of our denial of creation. The crisis we find ourselves in is due, he says, in significant part due to the steady erosion of the conditions necessary for the experience of the world as creation. The world is experienced not as a creation, but as a resource for exploitation. In other words, we have lost the ability and the interest probably to see the world as a gift from God. This is what Wurzba writes about this. If it was central to scripture that the whole of reality, ourselves included, exists as the expression of God's good pleasure, and that reality is therefore a reflection of a divine intention and goal, it is clear today, especially given naturalist, materialist, and consumer assumptions, that the world has little purpose other than the instrumental purposes humans ascribe to it. That is what enables us, he says, to treat the world as a resource to be exploited rather than a divine treasure to be appreciated. Now, if you studied with me before, you know that I'm pretty allergic to apologetic arguments that imagine that religion, almost always it turns out, religion as I imagine and practice it, is the quick and easy solution to all of our problems. It isn't. In the all-important image the Talmud uses, religion has the potential to be either Sam Chaim or Sam Mavet, an elixir of life or a deathly toxin. It takes work to make it an elixir of life. It takes work to make religion an elixir of life. I often think about this wonderful comment that the Vilna Gaon, Rabbi Eliyahu of Vilna, says about Torah. He says, Torah is like rain. It will fertilize whatever it lands on. And when it lands on filth, it will fertilize it too. So we should not assume that if we need to return to seeing the world as creation, we should just embrace or re-embrace religion and all will be fine. After all, religion in modern Western societies is all too often captive to the cultures it finds itself in, rather than being prophetic and critiquing them. Not all, to be sure, but much of the religion I saw growing up was totally subservient to the gods of wealth and consumption. You should see some of the neighborhoods I spent time in as a kid. From my perspective, the wrong question is, given what ails us, do we need more religion or less? The right question to me is, what kind of religion is it that can help us heal what so ails us and by extension so ails the world? So how does the Bible see the world and how can this help us? Let's look very briefly at Psalm 148, which is familiar to many of you, I suspect, from the liturgy. Psalm 148 imagines a cosmic chorus of praise. Most hymns in the book of Tehillim, in the book of Psalms, name the invited group in a verse or two, and then focus on describing the divine acts that are the reason for the praise. This psalm flips that. 
It spends almost all its time listing the invited groups. The divine acts are mentioned only briefly in verses 5 and 6 and in verse 13, each time introduced by key. In verse 5, because God commanded and they were created, etc. And then if you scroll down to verse 13, because God's name alone is sublime. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. Humans are mentioned very late in this psalm. Not, I think, because they are the climax or pinnacle of creation, but rather because, as the Bible scholar Richard Bauckham so, I think, powerfully notes, it may be that humans are the creatures who are most reluctant to praise their creator. They are placed last. We are placed last so that they may be encouraged to worship by the vision of the whole of the rest of the cosmos praising its creator. We see the mountains praise. We see the fruit trees praise. We see the animals and the beasts praise. We see the birds praise. And then and only then in verse 11, let the kings and everybody praise. Let the, the young men and the young women praise, old and young together, everyone. Let's join the cosmic chorus of praise. We human beings are part, as this psalm imagines it, as Jewish liturgy invites us to pray, this psalm imagines us as part of a cosmic chorus of praise. But here's the thing. You can't be part of the orchestra and kill the violinist. I mean, you can, but the orchestra will be much less beautiful as a result. And the music you're trying to create will be impoverished as a result. To drive other species to extinction is to kill the violinist. That's the metaphor here. That's the image. Now, in passing, I'd be happy to discuss this later. I'm always happy to discuss this. In a psalm like this, God is categorically beyond all of creation. There's no pantheism or panentheism or anything like that here. It is the created world in a, in a to, use, to borrow a term from Abraham Joshua Heschel, in a fellowship of praise, praising the transcendent creator who is the source of life for all of them. Now, Balka makes a point that I think is important for thinking about how the Bible understands the natural world that God created. The Bible, he says, de-divinizes nature, but it does not desacralize it. Nature remains sacred in the sense that it belongs to God, exists for the glory of God, even reflects the glory of God as humans also do, or maybe we should say as humans also can. The challenge, I think, is how hard it is for many, most, maybe almost all, of us to really relate to this in the fullness of our being. We are so secularized. God has been either expelled or promoted to deistic irrelevance. Lest it sound like I'm condemning non-believers, let me say clearly, there are very good reasons for robust, robust doubt, and many people in the Jewish community who live out religious lives, religious practice-oriented lives, are also totally secular. We live imprisoned in what the philosopher Charles Taylor refers to as an imminent frame, locked away from any possibility of sensing or being touched by transcendence. So this may be a path for some. It may be the only theistic path that can help us, but it is not and cannot be the only path because we are past the time in this world where everyone will be theists 
participating with nature in a chorus of praise. But to the extent that we imagine ourselves as believers in God, as worshipers and servants of God, and as inheritors of Torah, it is worth wrestling with really taking this psalm seriously. What would my life look like if I imagined myself as part of a cosmic orchestra? When the birds sing, they are part of the same orchestra as I am. Now let's turn for a minute to another crucial psalm about creation. Psalm 104, the psalm that most Jews liturgically uh, recite for Rosh Chodesh. And I want to sort of think about the theology that this psalm lays out because it's quite potentially moving and transformative. This psalm, which I invite you to read carefully later, expresses a pervasive sense of the world as God's gift to all living creatures. Crucially, not just, we're in, we're in 104, not just to humans, not even primarily to humans, but to all creation. All creation, according to this psalm, shares a fundamental and elemental dependence on God. Humans in this psalm, strikingly, get a little bit more attention than other living things. You can scroll down to verse 14 for a minute, Bachi, and you'll see that human beings, you make the grass grow for the cattle and herbage for man's labor, that he may get food out of the earth, wine that cheers the hearts of men, oil that makes the face shine, and bread that sustains men's life. And then again, later on in verses 23 and 26. So there are hints that to a certain degree, human beings are exceptional. There are references in this psalm to domesticated animals in verse 14. God makes the grass grow for cattle, to agriculture, to viticulture, to arboriculture, and to ships in the ocean. But there is no trace at all in this psalm of human supremacy over creatures in general. The impression is that we are fellow creatures, the dog, the cat, the tree, and we. God provides for humans, but for others also. This psalm is resolutely non-anthropocentric, but rather totally theocentric. It is totally focused on God as the source of goodness and life upon which every last created thing depends totally. Now let's talk for a minute about demoting the human for a minute. You make the grass grow for cattle and herbage for man's labor that he may get food out of the earth. Human beings are equals among equals. God creates food for cattle and the same kind of food for people. And then if you scroll down to verse 21, you'll see something extremely powerful. Verse 21, the lions roar for, pay, for prey seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they go home and couch in their dens. Man then goes out to his work, to his labor until the evening. As the Bible scholar William Brown observes, all that distinguishes the lion from the human is that the lion takes the night shift while the human works during the day. Verses 27 to 30, we learn about how God maintains God's providential care of the whole world. According to Genesis, as we know, Genesis chapter 2, God formed the human from dust and breathed life into him. But here, God's breath animates all living things, and without it, they all return to dust. 
All of them look to you to give them food. And then verse 30, right? To Shalach if you give them your spirit, they are created, they are alive. That's what it depends on. They depend on you just as humans did in Genesis 2. And then you find the tenderness in verse 28 of God feeding the animals by hand. God opens God's hand and feeds them. God provides not only food, but the very breath of life, caringly, lovingly. Here it is theology, or if you prefer piety, rather than science, that has the potential to awaken us to the profound interdependence that underlies everything. Now, when I was a kid in yeshiva, I thought that nature was basically like, you know how like sometimes you humor a fifth grader in an elementary school play and you tell them to like paint the nature scene and it's awful and you tell them it's beautiful. That's kind of how I was trained to think about nature. Non-Jews were bit players on the stage of Jewish history and the natural world was just a stage for what really mattered. These Psalms represent a radical alternative to that way of experiencing the world. By the way, no one ever said those things, but it was how I perceived them in a very kind of day-to-day kind of way. These Psalms try to make the opposite effect. They awaken us to our dependence and to our interdependence. And they awaken us to the way in which we, like the animals, like the plants, are always and entirely dependent on God. Now, to reiterate, this pic- the picture painted by this psalm is not anthropocentric, but theocentric, not focused on people, that is, but focused on God. God, and not we, is at the center of the universe. It is God's will, not ours, that should be enacted in the world, and the world belongs to God and not to us. Now, I don't have time for a close examination, tonight at least, of how being created in the image of God in chapter 1 of Genesis, and thus being appointed as God's steward, in Ibn Ezra's Hebrew, God's pakid. Crucial as it is, the human being as God's steward is only part of the Bible's picture of the relationship between God, humanity, and the rest of creation. It needs to be, needless to say, put into dialogue with the more egalitarian pictures of creation we've just seen in Psalms 148 and 104. Now, biblical scholarship is agreed that according to Genesis 1, to be created in the image of God is means to be appointed to rule the earth on God's behalf. The Torah's view of the image of God is that people are God's vice regents and earthly delegates. We are, as it were, deputies to the king. But here's the crucial thing. God's image of the king, as we see, for example, in Psalm 72, God's image of the ideal king, the king God would welcome, is one who looks out for and champions the cause of the needy and the vulnerable. It is decidedly not an exploiter who does what he will. The 34th chapter of the book of Ezekiel is about God firing the kings of Israel precisely because they think being a king entitles them to take what they want and do what they want. To be a king as God imagines it is the opposite. It is to take responsibility for one's most vulnerable subjects. We as earthly kings are responsible for our most vulnerable subjects. Now the vice in vice regent is crucial. 
because it is God's will for creation and not our own that we are directed to enact. Ibn Ezra, in his wonderful way, commenting on Psalm 114, says, Only fools think that we were given the earth to do what we want with. We were given the earth to do what God wants with. And the God of the Bible loves the created world. Genesis 1 repeatedly emphasizes and seems to revel in the fact that God created both vegetation and creatures of every kind. This is one of my favorite things about Breshit that I would never have seen as a kid, but takes my breath away. Breshit Aleph is not just interested in saying that God created seed-bearing plants and fruit-bearing trees, but rather seed-bearing plants and fruit-bearing trees of every kind. Living creatures of the sea and birds of every kind. Wild beasts of every kind. Cattle of every kind. Genesis 1 is like a hymn to biodiversity if only we listen. It goes out of its way to say God didn't create four species of animals or six or 12. God created countless species. God didn't just create four kinds of fruit. God created, look around, see how much fruit there is, how many trees there are. And crucially, God blesses the creatures of the sea and the birds of the sky. And I think by extension, the animals on the earth with the same words God uses for humanity. Be fertile and increase and fill the earth. Among other things, then, really, I want to underscore this point, which I just made. The Bible is a song, a prayer, a hymn to biodiversity, which is seen as unambiguously good in its own right. As one philosopher has recently put it, the human being may be the measurer of all things, but in Genesis 1, he is not the measure of all things. Again and again, even before humanity comes onto the scene, God says about the things God creates, kitov, that they are good. That, by the way, is a point made not by some liberal modern environmentalist rabbi in the 20th century. It is a point hammered home by Maimonides in The Guide of the Perplexed in his argument against excessive anthropocentrism. Right? The argument is... Creation is declared good repeatedly and emphatically prior to and separate from the arrival of human beings on the scene. If anything, what is striking is that the text never describes God looking at human beings in particular and proclaiming us good. Perhaps in the Torah's eyes, where humanity is concerned, the jury remains out. Here's what I should have said in the first chapter of the Heart of Torah when I wrote about this issue. If you take kingship as the Torah imagines it should be seriously, there is no way to justify exploitation of the earth and destruction of species. However, we know that very few kings in the history of the world have ever behaved as God expects kings to behave. And so in choosing the language of royalty for the human, the Torah plays with fire. It is a fire that can lead us to live in extraordinarily responsible ways and in recklessly irresponsible ways. Let me conclude with this. For many years, I have been writing and speaking about how the world is a gift and my life is a gift. My life in the world is a gift within a gift. I just want to repeat that. It's a sentence many of you have heard me say many times. The world is a gift and my life is a gift. My life in the world is a gift within a gift. 
I have to admit that over the last couple of years, I have come to have some misgivings about this formulation because an awful lot rides on how we understand gifts, perhaps generally, but certainly in this particular instance. When someone gives me a gift, is there an implied demand for what we might call proper use? Imagine that a friend gives me an extremely valuable rare manuscript from a book she knows I love. She gives it to me as a gift and I decide to use it to wrap fish. Have I done something wrong? After all, the word gift can arguably imply a transfer of ownership. And if something is mine, I can presumably do what I want with it. Or do gifts come with an expectation that I will treat the object and by implication, the giver with the respect both it and they deserve? If you wrap fish with a rare manuscript you've been given, according to that logic, you violated the terms of gift giving. That, by the way, I don't mean as a rhetorical question. I mean it as a real question. How do we think about gifts? If we think about gifts as licensing us to take manuscripts to wrap fish, then we cannot think of the world and our life within it as a gift within a gift. But if we think of gifts as coming with the responsibility of proper use, then perhaps that language is defensible and even helpful. I'm not sure what the answer to this question is, but I want to emphasize that when I say the world is a gift, I do not mean to suggest that there is a transfer of ownership involved. Not really. God remains always the sole owner of the world. God's gift to us of life in this world is more like being a gift certificate to spend a day in a spa than like having the deed for the spa handed over to us. No, I don't mean to be comparing a world filled with unfathomable suffering and unimaginable cruelty to a spa. I don't, that's not what I mean, obviously, I hope. My point is about being a guest somewhere versus being or becoming an owner. In the Torah's own language, in Exodus 19, kili kol ha'aretz, the whole earth is mine. In explaining the laws of Shemitah or the sabbatical year, the Torah insists that the land cannot be sold in perpetuity because it is not ours to sell. Kili ha'aretz, it belongs to me and not to you. We are, in the language of Leviticus 25, gerim v'toshavim, guests, strangers, temporary residents. So if you prefer, you can revise my language of my life is a gift and the world is a gift and my life in the world is a gift within a gift and instead say, my life is alone and the world is alone. My life in the world is thus alone within alone. And I am commanded, obligated, and ideally inspired to live accordingly. This episode of Tashma was produced by Jeremy Tabak and Sam Greenberg. Thank you to Michal Birnbaum and Nadav Remez for editing this episode. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you.